Amen. Uh, good to be together this morning. Uh, glad to see you. My name is Jeremy. I get to be one of the pastors and uh, grateful that we can gather in this spot on this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open to Judges chapter 7. That's the book we've been in. Uh, just three chapters of it leading up to Christmas, preparing us uh, for the coming of Jesus by looking in an interesting spot. Uh, Judges chapter 6, 7, and 8. Today we're in chapter 7. I give God thanks for giving His people different kinds of gifts and different kinds of work to do. We have an adult Sunday school class. We're going to be talking about that uh, in January. But as I think back, I think back of God giving me a couple of grandpas who did things that I cannot do. My mom's dad was a master woodworker, cabinet maker by trade, and made all sorts of beautiful, functional, sturdy works of art, including the desk that's in my office uh, right now, and just one of the many, uh, really kind of a smaller scale thing that he made with his very skilled hands, things that I could never create. My dad's dad was a father of eight, and he was a farmer but had hands, yes, farmer hands, very strong hands that could do all sorts of things. He also used them uh, to feed his eight children. Uh, There you see my grandpa in 1953 feeding one of my uncles. One thing about my grandpa's hands, though, was that three years after that, in 1956, my grandpa lost his four fingers on his right hand, on that hand that he's using there, uh, to a corn picker. Uh, And so, so then he just had the one hand Uh, and a stump and thumb on his right hand. Yet even with that stump, thumb, and one good hand, he could accomplish way more with his strong hand uh, than I ever will in my life. So there's a picture of him as well. You see kind of his thumb there, uh, which became extremely uh, strong as he used it for, you know, over 50 years then, uh, like it was a hand all by itself. Uh, So, uh, so a couple of grandpas for me, given unique gifts that God gave them in order to use their hands in very skillful and powerful ways. Today we're continuing this Advent series in Judges, chapter 7. Uh, again, context is the year is around somewhere uh, around 1100 B.C., long time ago, and there is a formidable foe for God's people. It is the Midianites. It was... God's people's own sin that got them into the position that they were in, but life had become miserable. They cried out to the Lord, and the Lord in His grace and mercy called Gideon, a a man who was hesitant, weak, and inexperienced, but a man who God would clothe with His own spirit, that's what we looked at last week, in order that He would be raised up to save Israel from their oppressor, the Midianites. When we left off last week at the end of chapter 6, the armies were assembling for battle. The Midianite army down in the valley and the Israelites up above. Today we will see see who wins and how. Here's the argument of today's message. We are small and weak, but we worship and obey the Lord who saves by His strong hand. 
Now, I'm going to read the entire passage. I won't, as I preach the sermon, read every verse of these again. And so this is the time where you need to be very attentive as I read the very Word of God, hearing everything that it has to say here in Judges 7. One thing I want you to note as I read through this is how frequently the word hand is used in just this one chapter of Scripture. If you're able to, please stand and we'll read the very Word of God. God, thank you. Uh, Thank you that you have given us your word. Thank you that we can gather together as your people. We want to be uh, attentive with our minds. We want our hearts uh, to to grow in their affection. Uh, We want to be all here today that you would mold us by your word, by your spirit, for your purposes. And so please do that even now in Jesus' name. Amen. Judges chapter 7. Here is the word of the Lord. Then Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, And all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So... He brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Every one who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you. And give the Midianites into your hand, and let all the others go every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand." But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterwards your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance." When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade, and he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the three hundred men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. 
When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah toward Zerorah as far as the border of Abel-Meholah by Tabith. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites, capture the waters against them as far as beth Barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as beth Barah and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. You can be seated. This is uh, an interesting, engaging, uh, thrilling kind of story. You see that I've got some props with me up here, uh, because I think these play an important role in the passage we're looking at. So we'll get to those here in a little bit. Also inside your bulletin is a sermon outline, a life group guide for you in there, so I invite you to turn uh, to that and use that if that's helpful for you as well. And you'll notice in there that the first point is just this, not by my own hand, not by my own hand. If you keep in mind the context of this, you'll be reminded that the Midianites were more powerful than the Israelites. That's kind of the nature of an oppressor over the oppressed. The Midianites were so powerful that remember what we were told in chapter 6 is that the Israelites felt like they had to flee. They went away living in caves and dens in the mountains because the Midianites were so cruel and oppressive. So the Midianites are the more powerful of the two armies now set for battle. And the oppression had gone on for seven years. So we don't know the size of their army, but we assume it's bigger than the size of Israel's army. Israel was the underdog. Even at 100% strength, they would have been the underdog to the Midianites. They were overmatched. So what is God going to do with that? The underdog Israel against the powerful Midianites, what is God going to do? He's going to shrink the army of Israel. Make it even smaller. He's going to shrink the army of the underdog. So you saw the way he did it. People are often intrigued by this. Uh, you know, well, first, cut number one. Did you catch cut number one? If you're doing the math, maybe you were doing the math in your head uh, while we were looking at this. The army started, the army of Israel, 32,000 people. After cut one, and the only cut was just like, hey, if you're scared, go home. Boom. 22,000 of the 32,000 leave. So now the army, 10,000 people, is at 31% of its original strength, okay? And then cut number two is a lot more interesting. He, he has, God has them go drink water 
uh, and then divides them according to the way they drank the water. Now, some people like love to speculate about things, so they get into like, oh, these ones were picked for this because they knelt down. Like, that's not really the point I don't think is trying to be made here. The point is God's separating men into two groups, and one of the groups gets sent home, and the other one stays to fight. Interestingly, the group that stays to fight, that God chooses to stay, is the group of 300. So now, if you're doing the math, an army that started as the underdog with 32,000 soldiers now has less than 1% of that, 300 people, against this vast army gathered around them of the Midianites. So, so the important question isn't like, well, how did God divide them up? The important question is, why did God divide them up? Why did God take an underdog army of 32,000 and cut it down to 300? Well, the answer is there in verse 2. What's the answer? Verse 2, it says this, The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many. I wonder if Gideon like raised an eyebrow as he heard God say that. <laughs> what? Have you seen them? Like, you think we got too many? The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Gideon's got to be thinking, uh, how, what? Too many? I was hoping you were going to send more. Right? We're already, the we, we're like, can I use a football analogy? I'm going to use a football analogy. It, it's, like, it's like the lowly Packers about to take on the mighty Vikings, and just before game time, the Packers are told, you need to cut your 53-man down roster down to a half of a dude. You're going to have a half of a dude. That, that's less than 1%, right? Uh, to go and play again. Like, well, how are we supposed to pull that off? We couldn't even beat them when we were our own team. Right? That's so, so football analogy. I don't think that's what Gideon was totally thinking, but that you get the idea. Like, he's got to be hearing this from God and wondering, well, that can't be a good strategy. Taking the underdog army of 32,000 and cutting it down to 300. But why does God do this? According to verse 2, God does this because he knows his people. And that if he allows his people in their own strength, to go and take over Midian, they're going to take the credit for it. Like it was us who did it. Lest they think, it says, that by my own hand, my own hand has saved me. We're going to come back to this in application, but let's keep going on in the second part of the passage. Second part of the passage, starting in verse 9, we're going to hear about reassurance and worship. Now, Understandably, if you were the inexperienced leader of the underdog army of 300, looking at this army in the valley below of thousands, don't you think you would be a bit afraid? Don't you think you would really wonder, is God really going to keep his promise that he will give the Midianites into my hand? I'm wondering now at this point how he's going to pull this off. I would want some reassurance, and so does Gideon. And before Gideon even asks for it, God offers it to him. Look at verse 9. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. And now, note, Gideon doesn't even ask. God just says this. He knows Gideon, right? 
But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterwards your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. And then he goes down with his servant. So interesting that God understands. Gideon would be understandably fearful in this situation. And so God says, go down and you're going to hear something that will strengthen your hands to go and do what I've commanded you to do. Now, just the visual alone will not give him reassurance. Even as he's starting to descend and look into the valley, here's what we note in verse 12. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. Their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. So visually, things are looking still really bad. But remember what God had told Gideon, it's something you hear that is going to strengthen your hand to keep going with what I've told you to do. And then what he hears is this dream. Anybody here have weird dreams? This is a weird dream. Did, like, did you hear me? Like, it's, it's a weird dream that this guy has. The, the way that God encourages and reassures Gideon that everything's going to be okay is he goes down to the camp and he listens to one soldier. This is what soldiers do, apparently, of Midian. They, they tell one another their dreams. And the one guy has a dream about a loaf of bread knocking over a tent. And the, his, his fellow soldier's interpretation of that dream is, that's Gideon, son of Joash, who's going to defeat the Midianites. Of course, right? <laughs> like, huh, interesting that that's the interpretation of the dream. A loaf of barley bread knocks over a tent. Oh, I of course know what that means. Gideon, son of Joash, is going to come and take out our army. Well, that's enough, though, for Gideon. He's convinced this is what God has given him as the thing he's heard that reassures him that God is going to be with him. And so, verse 15 says this, As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. He worshipped. I want to just point out this. This is a turning point in the whole account of Gideon. From this point on, what we've seen earlier of Gideon is that he is a very hesitant, cautious, fearful man. And after this point, Gideon becomes a decisive man of action. Not always in the right way, but he becomes a decisive man of action. And the turning point, the hinge, is this moment of him turning and worshiping the Lord. Gideon is suddenly convinced that God would do what God said he would do. And he knew the right response for him in this situation is submitting himself, worshiping, prostrating himself on the ground before the Lord who is going to do what he said he's going to do. So Gideon worships. Again, more on this in application, but let's keep going. Let's look at the rest of verse 15 all the way to the end of the chapter. Again, not going to read it again, but reminding us of what happens here. Point number three is this. Given into your hands, obedience, an interesting strategy, and victory. In verse 9, the Lord had told Gideon, arise, go down. And now we get to the end of verse 15 and we see him turning to the people of Israel and saying the same thing. It says in verse 15, right in the middle of it there, and he returned to the camp of Israel and said, arise, for the Lord 
has given the host of Midian into your hand. Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. Do you want, I mean, again, put yourself in the shoes of those 300 men looking down at this vast army numbering uh, like sand on the seashore, right? You're lo- they're like locusts in abundance. You're looking at that, and you're told, arise, go, the Lord has given them into your hands. How many of these guys are like checking their smartwatch and looking to see what their heart rate is at this moment? It's high, right? There's, there's some alarm going off. They're certainly unsure of this. And as if that weren't enough surprise... That, that it's going to be this army of 300 that overtakes them, the battle strategy is maybe even more of a surprise. Did you catch the battle strategy in verses 16 to 18? He divided the three men into three companies. That sounds normal. And then, listen to this weaponry. And he puts trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. Okay? He's got a empty clay jar here. I didn't have a torch, but I had a flashlight, so I brought that. And I have my trumpet from high school, okay? So so this is the weaponry that God gives to his people to fight the battle against the Midianites. We've We've got trumpets, empty jars, and a torch. This is what's given to the army of 300. Here's the strategy. Verse 17 And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So so this is the strategy. I'm going to give you a trumpet a torch, and a jar, and you're all going to shout. That's, that's the strategy that is given to them. And so, they execute the plan. They obey. Verse 19, look at this. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets. Right? So so they blow, I'm going to do it. I'm going to blow the trumpet, okay? Uh, I'm going to turn my microphone off and blow the trumpet. here, uh, and you've got 300 of them doing it. And notice what it says next. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch, and they blew the trumpets, and they smashed the jars that were in their hands. Now, this jar looks really nice, but I brought another one. Okay, do you want me to smash it? I'm going to smash it. So that's what they did. They made the noise. They're blowing the trumpets. They take the clay, and they just... 
Smash it, right? I'm going to pick up a little bit. <laughs> Excellent. So, so you've got now broken, broken jars, and you've got trumpets blaring and people shouting. That's what's happening there. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. So, so you imagine, like, how many hands do these guys have? Two, right? Left hand has the torch. They already broke the jar, so they don't have the jar anymore. Right hand has the trumpet. Anything about swords? They don't have any hands left, right? They've got, they've got a torch and they've got, in one hand, and they've got a trumpet in the other hand. held in their left hands the torches, in their right hands the trumpets to blow, and they cried out. Now they added a word. (laughs) Interesting. He told them to yell out, for the Lord and for Gideon, which is interesting. And then he tells, they all yell out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Nobody's even got a sword, right? Um, Every man stood in his place around the camp. And look at what God does. Like this is not like, oh man, the Midianite army was so well trained. They're, like their swordsmanship was incredible. They didn't even do anything. They smashed jars and blew trumpets. And look what God does. Every man, verse 21, stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled, and it tells us where they went. And then the rest of a few of the other tribes just come and like start chasing them. And then in verses 23 to 25, they find, we, we, they kill a couple of their princes, Oreb and Zeb. Okay? So, so that's, that's how chapter 7 ends, with victory given to God's people over the Midianites. Small, weak, outnumbered, silly weapons that they have, yet God brings victory to his people who just obey and do what they were told to do. The Midianite army of thousands self-destructs. Obedience leads to victory. This is an amazing true story. I, I hope you were engaged. I, like, it's just interesting. It's intriguing. This is one of those stories that like, when, when kids are younger, like, that's really interesting stuff, even more so when you break stuff uh, and, and, and have a trumpet, right? So, so that's interesting. But the goal, remember, of going through even the most interesting of the Old Testament accounts is not to say, well, that was really entertaining, That was intriguing. That was interesting. The goal is helping us to see how does this point us ahead to Jesus? Because in Luke 24, again, Jesus said, all of this points ahead to me. And so how, how does this point us ahead to Jesus? Well, in the weeks leading up to Christmas, there are some Old Testament passages, some prophecies in the Old Testament that we probably, if we think about it, we hear maybe, if you've been in the church for a while, you hear some of these Old Testament passages every year leading up to Christmas. Because they're so specifically pointing ahead to the coming birth of Jesus that it's like, well, it makes sense that we would hear this again and again. One of those passages is Isaiah chapter 9. But one thing I never noticed until very recently was that the illustration used in Isaiah chapter 9 is God's victory over the oppressor Midian. 
This thing we just looked at today, that's the illustration used in this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 9. Note the reference to Midian here and the victory over the oppressor Midian. We'll start in verse 2. So Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness... Oh, wait, uh, context again. We, were in, we, we, we looked at Isaiah last week too. Isaiah, about 400 years after the time of Gideon, but 700 years still before the birth of Jesus. Okay? So timeline, we've got Gideon about 1100 B.C., Isaiah about 700 B.C., and then Jesus born. Right? So, so that's the timeline. Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Lord of hosts being this, this military term for the Lord. The, the, the Lord who, who reigns over the army. He is sending one, a son, a child who will be born, who will reign and will have victory over the oppressor, just as God's people had victory over the oppressor Midian back in that day. That's the, that's the type, that's the picture pointing ahead to this coming day when God sends his own son, a child, to be born government on his shoulder, his name above every other name, and he will have victory over our oppressor, sin and death. Praise be to God, right? Isaiah chapter 9. How will God do this? How will God reign through his son? How will God give victory over the oppressor through his son? Remember in Judges chapter 7, the weapons are surprising. The way in which God brings about victory is quite surprising. We've got torches and jars and trumpets. And so too when God sends His Son, the way that He will have victory over the oppressor is kind of surprising. The instrument of victory is an instrument of execution. A humiliating death on a cross is the way that God will have victory over sin and death. So we look ahead then to Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, we read this, starting in verse 8. And being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God sent His Son to trample death by death, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, it says there in verse 8. Jesus conquers sin by humbling Himself in that way, and therefore God highly exalts Him and gives Him the name that is above every name, so that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the good news. The good news, we see a seed of it there in Gideon pointing us ahead to the prophecy in Isaiah that is fulfilled most clearly in Jesus the Son who dies and who is raised and who is exalted, who is Lord. And so the question for you to get very personal is, have you confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior? If you're like every other human, you naturally like to sit on the throne yourself like you're the king. Like everything goes through you, like you're the master of your own destiny. But this is rebellion against the one who made us. Rebellion against the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Jesus is the only Lord and the only one who can free us from the oppression of our sin. Like you can't. You can't free yourself from oppression of sin. But God can. And so, good news. Romans 10.9 simply says this. If you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So I ask you, have you confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior? If you want to know more about what that looks like, what that means, come and talk to me before you leave today. But for those of us who have been saved through faith in Jesus, there's application for us in this. And I don't want to miss it. Two points of application for believers. Number one, we need to be reminded again we were not saved by our own hands. We were not saved by our own hands. Remember in Judges chapter 7 verse 2, God said, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Why? Lest Israel boast over me saying, My own hand has saved me. We are prone to believe in ourselves. Prone to think we did it or we can do it. And this is deadly. Because it, when it comes to the things that matters most, we can't. We didn't. We cannot save ourselves. No matter how strong your hand is, you cannot save yourselves. You did not make Jesus your Lord and Savior. We don't make Jesus anything. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Savior. And we humbly submit ourselves to Him, acknowledging that our salvation comes from Him from the very beginning, chosen by the Father, Penalty paid by the Son, born again by the Holy Spirit. We simply respond with repentance and faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 makes it clear. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We need to be reminded again and again and again and again that we are not saved by our own hands, but by His mighty hand. And when we see this, when we see that God is a God who not only makes a promise to send a Savior, but He has sent His Savior. He has sent His Savior to to live, to die, and to be raised again. 
when we trust in him, the right response is the same response that Gideon had when he was convinced that God is a God who keeps his promise. That is the response of worship, of submitting ourselves to him. This is, this is what we can do. What else can we do? A God who, who would keep his promise by sending his son to die in our place for our sin. A God who would save us, not because we deserve that salvation, but by His own grace. The only thing we can and should do is worship that God. And finally, number two, we will not experience victory or fruitful ministry by our own hands. Just as we will not be saved by our own hands, we will not experience victory or fruitful ministry by our own hands. Gideon had an army that was weak and small, But victory came when they worshipped and obeyed. Even when that obedience seemed foolish. Don't you wonder what some of the people in the army were thinking? We should have found a better commander than this guy. Really, your strategy involves pottery and musical instruments and a little bit of light? That's how we're going to do this? This seems foolish. But then we remember... That the same God who led Gideon and the army to victory there over Midian is the same God who sent His Son. And victory would come through something that looked very foolish to everybody around them. This instrument of execution, that's, that's how you're going to win victory. Death on a cross. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and we'll end there. Listen, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. This is the way God continues to work. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that, listen, sounds a lot like Judges 7 too, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. In Gideon's day, in Jesus' day, and in our day, the Lord uses small, weak, foolish instruments like us to be conduits of the gospel. So that our faith and the faith of others might not rest on our wisdom, but on the power of God. In church, we will not experience, from this day forward or any day in our history, we will not experience victory or fruitful ministry by our own hands, but only by our humble obedience and our worship as we plead for Him to work through our weakness by His strong hands for His glory. Let's pray. Father, we humble ourselves before You because what else could we do? We worship You because what else could we do? We confess that though we are small and weak, we sometimes think we're bigger, stronger, and more capable than we actually are. We think more depends on us than it actually does.
Thank you for this reminder today that, that we can't save ourselves by the strength of our own hands. Help us to remember that we will not experience victory or fruitful ministry by the strength of our own hands. Thank you, God, that you have sent your Son. Thank you, Lord, that, that, that you have sent Jesus to come. And we want to be people who gladly receive our King and desire that more and more people in our community and our nation and the world around us would also find the joy that comes only in Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you're able, please stand.